are listening to Two Sons of Tatooine. If there's a bright center to the universe, you're listening to the podcast that it's farthest from. And here are your hosts, Jonathan and Nathan. Welcome to another episode of Two Sons of Tatooine. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. NP Bro, and joining me as always is Jonathan Cohn. We'd like to thank you for listening to the show, where today we'll be talking about Disney Gallery's The Mandalorian docuseries, specifically the first four episodes. If you haven't had the chance to watch those yet, they follow a sort of roundtable discussion between the makers of the show with different guests each episode. The first time features the directors. Episode 2, called Legacy, has the creative minds behind it, such as Dave Filoni and Jon Favreau. Episode 3 brings a lot of the cast to the table, such as Carl Weathers, uh, Pedro Pascal, and Gina Carano. And in episode 4, they look at the technological developments from the show and ILM. So, Jonathan, while we might jump around at times, let me start off by asking you, what was one of your main takeaways from the first episode, talking about the directors of The Mandalorian? Well, hello, everyone. It's great to be back, as always. And I loved this documentary series. And uh, when we were talking off air, uh, I mentioned how my dad and I are going through the regular Mandalorian series now because we wanted to see all the changes and all the things that we could notice from the docuseries. And we were just, like, amazed at how flawless everything is. Um, so that's one you know thing I'll say about the overall is it's making me go back, which is a great thing. A documentary should always make you want to go back to the original content. Oh, yeah. um, but talking about that first episode about the directors, I loved it. A lot of people were saying... You know, why did you start out with the directors? Why didn't you start out with the legacy one? And I get why you could do that. But to me, I liked starting with the directors because it establishes the key players in who's making the show. Yes, you have, you know, your actors and you have your maybe some of your producers and all that stuff. But the writers and the directors are the ones who have the most power and the most creativity, I I think, when Mm -hmm. it comes to forming the show right. and making it what it is. And so I really liked that. Um, uh, so that's my overall. What was your uh, overall thoughts on the first episode, yeah, they, Nathan? For as far as execution goes, there's a lot of insights that they offer into some of the ways they made and just, you know, thinking about creatively, you know, what were their ideas that made this show come together so well? Um, I thought, and any chance that we get to hear anything from Dave Filoni, it's kind of like sitting around oh, yeah. the campfire and listening to your granddad uh-huh. tell stories and you just wide-eyed oh, yeah. at everything he says because of his great understanding. And anytime he chances, you know, to just really explain that, he did it to the directors and to the cast. And we know he's done the same thing with the Clone Wars and he's explained things. To oh, people. yeah. So in that mm-hmm. episode, we get, a, we get another chance to hear him just talk to us about Star Wars and teach us. And, you know, him yeah. talking about some of the themes and... Uh, I think I think we both agree that his potential to lead Star Wars in the right direction is really that's the way that we want him to go, and that's that's where I think the, mm-hmm. the most success will be in the future is with him, kind of at the head of the creative side of of Star Wars. Oh, absolutely, and I would say that you know when you talk about him like acting like a grandfather around the campfire, well, that's because George Lucas <laughs> did that to him. For so many years, for almost 10, no, not eight, for about eight years, George Lucas just spent every day talking with Dave Filoni about Star Wars. And most of the time it was about the episodes of the Clone Wars, but sometimes George would just be like, all right, go do whatever you want. And he would be like, hey, I have this question. And George would go on for like an hour on a simple one, (laughs) one word question. So uh, I love that about Dave, that he has the same type of quality. And there's one thing at the beginning, in that first episode, where Jon Favreau makes this film reference, not Star Wars, just a film reference. And Dave Filoni says, oh yeah, it's just like this in Star Wars. And Favreau looks at him like, that's a really deep cut. I don't get it. And it's something that... A regular Star Wars fan probably is going to get because it was talking about the the, tro- the snow troopers on Hoth, but it was just funny how like you know Favreau sees things right. from a movie perspective and Dave Filoni sees things from a Star Wars perspective. Mm-hmm. It's just the lens that he has, and so I personally really liked uh, getting to see that dynamic between them. They bring the two 
halves of what I think the showrunners should have. You have the some you have the person who knows how to make epic productions. That person maybe is not a big Star Wars person, but the, I mean they, they like Star Wars, but their big thing is making big film. Then you have the person helping them out who is a big Star Wars person, and that person is kind of saying, okay, why don't we do this here and this here, kind of like changing it a little bit so it still works thematically, but fits in the Star Wars world. And that's why I just think they have enormous potential between the two of them. Oh, yeah. Um, it's personally, personally one of the reasons I love Solo, because... One of the writers was Lawrence Kasdan, who knows how to make films. He's made some of the best, he's written some of the best films of all time. But the other writer was John Kasdan, who literally grew up playing the Star Wars toys and playing with Star Wars video games and books and whatnot. And every time his dad would say, hey, let's, let's write this character off screen, his son would be like, hey, what if we made that Aura Sing? There are a lot, just, of, just saying. A lot of those throwbacks that Jonathan loves in Solo, and I know those came oh, it's, because of him, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was so John Kasdan, is that? John Kasdan, yeah, his son. And so it just shows that if you just put two people together with those types of um, uh, those types of differences, it really works well. So, uh, yeah, you did hint on my thing that I think Dave Filoni yeah. is going to be a great director, not just in Star Wars, just as a director, because throughout the first episode, you see him asking questions. You see him being like, hey, Deb, what what would you do? Hey, Rick, how, how would you do this? And he didn't just rely on his own creativity. Part of that is because he'd never directed live action anything before. And that was, as you'd expect, very daunting for him. But still, he does not have the ego of my way or the highway. He has this, I want to learn, learn from the best. And, and all of them have that. All the directors showed that. But Dave really felt like he was truly trying to learn more than any of them. And so I did appreciate that about him. Were there any other things about Dave Filoni that you noticed? He's humble. He is approachable. He doesn't treat his Star Wars knowledge as if he is the creator, that that he is Luke. Absolutely. He treats it with a respect that makes him someone that every every fan of Star Wars looks up to the guy and says... You yeah. know more than me. You 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 understand this like nobody else. You've accepted the role that George kind of groomed you for, and you've accepted it mm-hmm. with with the level of poise that everybody can respect. And and you know, when I think about him kind of making it his whole identity, I guess that's part of who he is. He's accepted the yeah. role as Lucas's apprentice, and yeah. and maybe Star Wars will be something that he kind of is locked into for the rest of his. For the rest of his career, mm-hmm. to a degree, he may I think he so. may branch out in places, but you know, even George I Lucas, I feel you know he he did other things, and he you know he of yeah. course he American Graffiti, great, all these different things that he has got under his belt, Indiana Jones, and whatnot. But I mean, when mm-hmm. we talk about Lucas, I feel like he did get a little bit tired of Star Wars for for parts of it. You know, he got a little bit burnt yeah. out on it, and I I don't want to mm-hmm. see Filoni have that same kind of eventual tiredness wearing down with the Star Wars and I have not seen any signs of it so far so there's there's a lot of hope in that regard for us. I think that what really is good about Filoni is keeping him moving around. So for the for the Mandalorian, he's doing a live action series to keep it fresh put him in an animated series next, then give him another live action, then give him movies. Like, don't lock him in and say he's just the animation guy or just the TV show guy. Keep throwing him to other things because it keeps him learning and it keeps him excited because he's getting to do something new. But at the same time, he's still staying in Star Wars, something that he knows intrinsically, and he's good at storytelling. So that's why I think that it's good that they moved him away from animation. Because I think that if he had stayed and done another animated show, it would have been great, but he might get tired. So I think this is like a good sidestep for him. His ideas, Um, and when he gets onto the silver screen, the things that he'll bring yeah. will, will probably blow our minds that he's kind of even, I wouldn't be surprised if he saved things. Um, but oh, absolutely. Part of that humility, and we, you alluded to this, but with his ability to really know what he doesn't know, and he, he surrounds yeah. himself with John Favreau and with the best, brightest minds, directors that respect the property um, and, and bring new ways that he is going to learn from them of how to do this, how to execute it, and what, what, what ways yeah. do you translate my ideas of, well, I know the animation side, but 
This is literally a totally different thing with live action plus the new technology, which we'll talk about. Yeah, he, absolutely. He learns from these guys and he surrounds himself with the best of the best. Um, I, I think overall we can definitely say it's in the best hands with, with Dave Filoni. Oh, yeah, and, and, and into the reverse, Favreau did the same thing, though I think that Favreau shows a good manager style because he said, all right, I need to find these people and these people and these people, and I put them together, and he really got the best, and he said, okay, this doesn't work. How do we make this work? And he said, we can't do a standard television show on a Star Wars budget, so let's figure out how to be able to do it so it looks like Star Wars, yet is cheaper to make. And that's how he was able to get the volume, and we'll talk about that later. But, like, to a degree, a lot of people discredit Kathleen because of the creative choices that she's made. And I agree she has made some wrong creative choices. But when it comes to business, she's done quite a few good ones. And one of them was saying, hey, John Favreau, I like your idea. You know who really knows Mandalorians? This Dave Filoni guy. I'm going to put you two together and we're going to see what happens. And I think that was a brilliant move on her part. And to an extent, she talked about it in the episode she was in, but when she got to Lucasfilm, she looked at all the patents and she said, all right, what are the things that are unique to us that we can utilize to our advantage? And she just tried to learn as much as possible. So she has a long way to go. She's made a lot of missteps. And I think that, you know, I don't think she's the best creative necessarily. But when it comes to a manager, I think she is a fairly decent manager. Um, but I think eventually I think that she's actually kind of getting burned out eventually and I think she's gonna leave soon and when she does I think personally that John Favreau should be the, the president and that um Filoni should be a creative executive because Filoni knows the creative side but John Favreau knows the business side and he knows how to manage movies so that's just me personally do you have a, a view on that I, I wonder if you would take it and just getting to know him more through the series, he really enjoys the the process. He might he might he does. not want to leave that yet, but of course it would be a, a you know a step up. I think if that does happen, that they'll have they'll have a, huff, a tough choice finding a replacement. But someone like him who has a good respect and has worked in the property would be a good good idea to hire inside of the experienced. So yeah, uh, let me ask you this: of the of the directors, did you have a favorite? of season one of Mandalorian, you know, somebody that stuck out to you, you thought they did the best job? Well, that's difficult because there's no one person that stood out up out leaps and bounds uh, ahead of the others. For instance, I'll go through some of my little notes and then I'll talk about the overall. So one person that was great was Deborah Chow because she's just a boss. And she's just like, they were like, yeah, have four or five stormtroopers for Mando to kill. She said, okay, what if we do 40? And they're like, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to kill them this all. The I'm just going to have, <laughs> oh, this is the way. And she's just like, I want to, I want to set the record. And I think technically, um, uh, I think Taika has the record at the moment for the most stormtroopers mm. killed because in that uh, last episode, whoo, just went on a rampage. But uh, yeah, Deborah Chow, she that third episode, she showed that she loves action movies and she loves genre. I've heard in all her interviews, she says she loves genre. She loves fantasy, science fiction, science fantasy. She loves all of it. And that, for me, gives me hope for Kenobi because I know there's been you know trouble of finding the right writers, and it's good that they're taking their time on Kenobi because you don't want to just give it to a writer and just rush it out there. You want to make it the right thing, and they definitely have the right director, at least, in her. My other point I was going to make was Rick Famuyiwa. He is such a unique director. He takes so many risks. He may take so many chances. Mm. And for me, sometimes it works. For instance, Chapter 2 of The Mandalorian is my favorite episode of The Mandalorian. And perhaps some of the best Star Wars, in my opinion, like 30 minutes of Star Wars. Now, sometimes his risks don't work. Chapter 6 of The Mandalorian I, was my least which favorite. Which I actually enjoyed a lot more than you did. I, I love yeah, the, the detour of that episode, but I also loved episode two. I ranked it lower yeah. than you, but but at the same time, it is a very good look at just kind of the more slow-paced Star Wars adventure. I mean, a little side story almost. Yeah, but, yeah. absolutely. But what I'm saying is that, like, for me, he did my favorite and my least favorite episodes. So it's not like he stands out above completely, but I like that he also was kind of like, 
I want to, I like, I like the Jawas. I'm going to experiment with how I do the Jawas. And he was like, maybe with this huge, um, ship that they're on with all the little details on that ship. He was like, maybe I'll just keep throwing stuff in. And I like that. Um, and then you had the people who did only one episode. So it's kind of hard to give Bryce Dallas Howard and Taika Waititi as much praise because they haven't done as much as Rick Famuyiwa, Deb Chow, or Dave Filoni. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but Bryce Dallas Howard, I love how, uh, how much she was getting into the character-driven stuff. Um, she was really getting in there and showing, okay, when you fight, you fight like this. And when you punch, you punch like this. And she was in there with the actors and standing in their place because she herself (laughs) is an actress and she knows how to do it. And I don't think she has any future Star Wars plans at the moment um, that I know of. However, I would not be opposed to seeing more of her. And just her love of Lucas and... Lucasfilm and just that she just has a lot of respect for it that I liked and then Taika Waititi of course you know uh, I, I after watching this he, he is hilarious you get across from watching the docuseries that you would never know oh, that yeah. he's a prankster that he's messing with people like this yeah well he you know they didn't show this but he actually his first day on set he showed up in pajamas <laughs> um, to start shooting <laughs> He's literally wearing, the rest of them are wearing these, you know, suits. They're outside in the hot sun for that one because they had to shoot the, <laughs> the whole episode eight stuff. And he, they're outside and he just shows up in pajamas is like, sup Please y'all. Please tell me that they were and Yoda jammies because, you know. <laughs> I uh, wouldn't surprise me. He has the weirdest clothes, which, you know, is kind of funny. But so, but this, I was like you, uh, I had a little bit of, hesitancy about him directing a Star Wars film because sometimes his humor is a little off color. I thought Thor Ragnarok was hilarious. I do not want that type of humor to, I do not want a Thor Ragnarok in my Star Wars. However, there are, there were two times in the, in, in the docuseries where he specifically was pointing out how, Yes, you can inject humor into Star Wars. Lucas had tons of humor, but he had a reverence. He had a respect. He had a seriousness to it that was always there. And he said, you can inject a little bit of humor, but you can't go overboard. Mm -hmm. And so he realizes that his humor doesn't necessarily completely mesh with all of Star Wars. And so he knows he can't go full Thor Ragnarok. He can't go full comedy in whatever his movie is. His movie, I guarantee you, will have more humor than any other Star Wars movie. It's just by nature, but he's not going to go overboard. And I think I felt reaffirmed uh, learning that in this. Uh, in this, So, really, as, as I'm saying, none of them step, stand out. Obviously, for me, my favorite is Dave Filoni because he's done the most. He's in the most. He's, he's in the trenches the most. But I still totally... Um, uh, totally respect all the others as well. Um, uh, probably Deb Chow because I'm most interested in what she'll do with Kenobi. But Rick Famuyiwa is currently being floated for the uh, Rogue One uh, series, the uh, Cassian Andor series, to direct a few episodes. Um, so, as I'm saying, none of them stood out too much other than Filoni. When I was thinking about Taika and his humor that we're talking about, you know, just overall in The Mandalorian, the the humor was pretty good. I thought mm-hmm. one or two moments where we could call it 2019. And, yeah. you know, just a couple yeah. of kind of more modern style. But overall, I thought this is a much better take on humor within the real Star Wars universe than just, by contrast, the, the Yumrama joke that was in The Last Jedi. You know, yeah. I thought some of those in Last Jedi really tried to to go too far in the let's inject this what we think is funny today. Marvel, maybe the Marvel style. Yeah. It it would have worked mm-hmm. with characters that fit that persona, and uh, mm-hmm. I think I think there was a lot of wisdom in the way that they handled it. I hope that they'll bring Taika back. I know he's not scheduled to um, direct any from season two, and with with IG Eleven also out of the picture, unless they make another IG droid, which has the same voice, which they could do. I would like to see them yeah. make another IG droid. We, we could finally have IG-88 back, right? If they want to pay for the rest. I, uh, maybe. Yeah. 
Um, well, well, they don't have to pay for the rights because they well, are Lucasfilm. I, I, I so. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say was he's going to be really busy because he has Thor Love and Thunder to direct and then immediately after has to go do the next Star Wars movie that he's doing. So he's probably going to be very busy for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, having a Marvel and a Star Wars, it's no, no small feat. And he has to do them back to back. So he's going to be tired. So that's why I think it's okay that he's taking a break after <laughs> The Mandalorian. He's that that was that was his tryout. That's sure. the great thing about The Mandalorian. It's, a great, it's serving as the jumping yeah. springboard. Yes. I, yes. Yeah. And I hope that, that that respect and being around Dave and things like that, you'll have learned enough to properly have the right mindset going into it, even from a planning perspective from the point that he's at right now. And so Yeah. So, but but let's transition. Can we transition to into yeah. episode 2? Uh this episode, mm-hmm. I thought the very best thing that they did about it. And if you watch this, you tell me if they don't, if it didn't feel this way to you, but to me it felt like they have a huge respect for George Lucas. And they Absolutely. wanted to honor him. Disney themselves mm-hmm. wasn't out to, in the least bit, there's not even a hint of bad-mouthing George. And, you know, whether or not that's popular among the fan base at different times or another, that's not mentioned. All that's mentioned is all the great things that he's done, um, the respect for the prequels, which used to get a lot more, you know, seem like, you know, bad reception, mm-hmm. which now has have come around and people like them like oh, yeah. more and more. And um, absolutely, included, and I can't help but mention all the memes that have come out of them that are that are great. Oh yeah, um, of course. <laughs> which I sent you, I sent you one early today. I wish I could laugh. Oh yeah, <laughs> but um. All the, all the time. They're, they're so funny. And but as you're saying, that Disney has the respect. And when... I, I'm going to be jumping over a place, but he, hear me out. When J.J. Abrams came in, J.J. Abrams did not have the respect for the prequels. And when he's made Force Awakens, what was the um, first line of the Force Awakens? This will begin to make things right. Mm-hmm. And... I very much, knowing J.J., believe that that was a little nod at George. I mean, he respects George Lucas, but he doesn't respect the prequels. And he was saying, you know, we had a misstep with the prequels. This is going to change that. Obviously, people debate on whether or not the sequels are better. I think they're kind of tied, depending on the way you look at it. But uh, And then you said the same with Last Jedi. He he, He referenced the prequels a little, but he didn't have a real respect for the prequels either. And so a lot of people were led to believe, well, Lucasfilm doesn't respect the prequels. Hmm. Lucasfilm doesn't respect George. And I believe that the directors got highlighted as representing the whole of Lucasfilm, when in reality, as we've seen, John Knoll, who was there working with Lucas back in the 90s and the 2000s, he has a huge respect. Kathy Kennedy has a huge respect for George Lucas. Hmm. Um, If you look at the behind the scenes... There are several behind the scenes of him, of George Lucas talking with Kathy. And there were these reports that came out where people were like, they're banning her from the set and, uh, you know, they don't want her anywhere near this. And it's like, well, obviously not because she's been very much involved. And when she's there with George, she's talking with him quite a bit in the behind the scenes. Some of it he's talking with Favreau and Filoni, but he, it's not like he ignores her. Mm. Um, and I'm sure he could have if he wanted to. So I like that they showed that Lucasfilm, as you said, does have that respect for, for George Lucas. One of the keys to success, if I, if I guess this, I think they did not always have the right group of minds together. Within a context of kind of sharing ideas collaboratively, we talked about that in, yeah. in episode one, you know, episode one of the docuseries with the roundtable discussion. They had the great collab, you know, did they have that same openness with George? People have accused them in the prequels of not saying no to him enough. You know, somebody yeah. to veto some of his ideas or say, let's do this instead. Um, kind of like in episode five, obviously. With um, Anyway, if you think about it, <laughs> <laughs> we, you're left. But I, th- I feel like there's stories about episode five where, where he was like, no, George, this is we're going to make a great movie. No, 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 George. <laughs> no, George. No, 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 we're not. We're not doing that, George. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine more. But anyway, so we get back to that. The idea of creating an environment where you can receive constructive criticism of you know people that have a, a expertise other than your own. And you don't yeah. feel the need to maybe insert today's humor as much as you do to yeah. understand Star Wars humor or to understand the, the universe that you're creating, what would fit there and what would even, let's say, be... 
uh, harmonious with the and and would fit with the other trilogies? Would it would it work mm-hmm. with that? So if you went from one show or one episode of Star Wars into this episode of that, does it feel like a big, big total change? Anyway, those questions being asked, and the legacy of Star Wars as a whole. When we get people that respect it and respect George and kind of they take, I guess you're having to fit all of it in together now. You're not no part of yeah. Star Wars is not Star Wars, even the parts that we don't like as much. And but understanding all of them together and taking say this is really good and this fits with that. That's what that's what we can build on for this, for the legacy of the future. And and this was in my mind it was a good answer to hey, we're respecting George. We're trying to understand him, and the prequels aren't something that hopefully we're going to badmouth forever. As a prequel defender, I don't I don't think that they're the best movies ever, but I mean, I definitely don't think episode two, I think that's my least favorite. But I feel like if we can get to the point where the average person no longer has to cringe or badmouth the prequels every time they're brought up, that would be a big step forward yep. for Star Wars. I, I really I argue a lot with people who, and yes, you can talk about the dialogue all day long, but... Um, Let's get to the point to where we are able to enjoy those as Star Wars movies, and then we can really we can really say, "Hey, this is some good stuff." And look at how they built on this, and look at even in some of the I mean, in the modern novelizations, you could talk about how they went and realized, "Hey, we should we should have tweaked that," and they fixed some of those things. Exactly. Oh yeah, I'm reading that. I just finished the Rise of Skywalker novelization, and I totally love the Rise of Skywalker a lot more because I understand the movie more. Because there was stuff in the script and stuff that they just couldn't fit in the script that didn't make it on screen, and it's just like, oh, that makes more sense. Like, why was the ship? Why was Ochi's ship still on Pasana after 30 mm-hmm. years? Why hadn't it been scavenged? They explain that in the book. Or why did the Emperor wait until that moment to reveal himself? They reveal that in the mm. book. And so there's like all these things. And so that's why there's so many ways to look at something that if you don't go to get the answer right now, maybe you wait a little. Like with the prequels, there were a lot of prequel um, things that a lot of people had problems with. And the Clone Wars TV series answered them. Oh, yeah, totally. Now, we, now I go back and I watch the prequels and don't have as big a problem. Now, I love the prequels. Love the prequels. So, but, but I'm saying I don't have as big a problem as before because my questions are answered more because it's in the other mediums. And I do not blame directors for having to cut things out of their movie that would make the thing, movie understood more because you can only have so much time mm-hmm. in a movie. Great so scene, that's a whole... Just for pacing or for, for whatever reason. Just for pacing just don't make sense. Um, and it isn't a shame that so many people are not willing to look beyond the main film to find the answers and they, they pull a clump complaint like that out over and over and over again, and we can we can even give them the Absolutely. answer. Absolutely. Hey, they they dealt with that, and they answered it in a very satisfactory way mm-hmm. in this other show or book. Hey, check it out. You'll like mm-hmm. it. Eh, I don't want Absolutely. to. And they give that excuse. Okay, y- you know, well, choose to ruin Star Wars for yourself, and but don't keep <laughs> don't keep calling it a failure or a bad film or whatever else. You know, your critiques are valid. Sure, they can they can be, but. And, and it's just like today. I mean, people are so quick to jump and say, you know, they make their opinion up before all of the answers are even out there about a situation. Yeah. Just wait for mm-hmm. wait for the, the rest of the products to come in and then, and then you know, get to enjoy it as a fuller thing. Um, Absolutely. Um, I don't really want to talk too much about Dave Filoni's um, uh, d- deep dive that he had in that episode about how Star Wars is about a... Um, uh, uh, a father figure and, and, you, and you're not having that said father figure and how he talks about how, you know, uh, Anakin needs Qui-Gon to be the one to raise him, but because Obi-Wan raises him more as a brother than as a father, that he doesn't raise him with the proper way and thus that leads him down the road to destruction. But what, f- what works in the, re- the Return of the Jedi is uh, Luke finally gets his father figure back mm. when his when when Luke's father Anakin, who didn't have a father, broke the system that he had had and finally acted like the father that he needed to have. So um, that was that yeah, was all what, really, really uh, great. just absolutely yeah. It's and there are so many podcasts right now dedicated just to that topic. Really? Okay. So we'll either leave that f- completely or come back to it another day because that's way too much to get into on this episode. But suffice it to say, both of us like yes. that. Um, uh, I have to say the actors episode 
overall, it was okay. I wasn't wowed by it. I really it. enjoyed that. I was just like, yeah. really? Yeah, I did. I'm surprised. Just, I was just kind of like, I didn't learn as much as like, I already knew that Pedro Pascal really wasn't in the outfit most of the time. I knew that it was the stunt doubles most of the time. So I didn't learn much in that sense. And actors are the least intriguing part of the film to me. Um, so, but while well, you go on, since you seem to like it a lot more. I noticed that one of the comments made was that there was three different players, three different actors who portrayed the Mandalorian in the mask and in the, in the armor. And that yeah. John Favreau, he could tell the difference between each one of them. He could, he was yeah. able to notice which one, even watching it, you know, just because of their mannerisms or the way they walked. And so on my rewatch, which I started rewatching last night, and I told you that, but I'm, I'm really trying to see if I can notice as well. And I feel like through episode one, it does, like I can tell that it's not Pedro Pascal walking some of the time, you know? I feel yeah. like there's, mm-hmm. there's some things like that. And I, I found that interesting. Um, I wonder if they can't do a little bit better job to clarify that for season two. And maybe maybe his attention to those will, will make it even better. Where they where they really with the whoever's whoever's portraying at the time, Pedro may be able to be there a lot more. He may be more accessible for season two. They may have they uh, more, he have is, more yeah. budget whatnot. Um, it was mm-hmm. cool to see him recording some of his lines and some of the effects on him. Uh, but oh my gosh, who <laughs> if you had a let's say it was a charisma award. Uh, I and you might, you might have to argue between Carl Weathers and Billy Dee Williams, but who's the most charismatic <laughs> man in Star Wars? It's got to be one of those two gentlemen because they're just oh, absolutely, they're, they're absolutely adorable. I mean, adorable another one. They're infatuating. They're phenomenal oh, yeah. people that are charming and classy, <laughs> and they make you smile with everything that they say. They just ooze like, you know, you know, integrity. And awesomeness. So I, I really enjoyed, and you could tell um, Gina, she went on this whole yeah. rant, just like how much she adored Carl Weathers and everything that he said oh, yeah. elevated the quality. And she was nervous around him, but she was also inspired. And her, you know, her performance was raised by the quality of his. And uh, after mm-hmm. that whole thing, you know, he Carl Weathers just well, thank you, Gina. That that meant a lot to me. <laughs> that was so nice of you to say, you know. And yeah. she's just like just just lushed about him which it makes sense he it's like great. a it's like it's she's nerding out about her fellow co-worker and that's just really cool to see that they have that dynamic and um uh as i would like an entire grief karga novel not because i care about learning more about his character but i want an audiobook for that novel and i want that audiobook to be read, to by, be read by carl <laughs> weathers and I would, I would, I would listen to that audiobook. Mm. Oh man, his voice! And I want one. Just they didn't talk about him much, but I want an entire audiobook about the client, um, uh, about Werner Herzog's character. Because oh my goodness, his voice! I would like to see oh, the baby. Yes. It's just such a cool, such a cool a voice. Great, great I just. And so I do like that about them. But the one note I did have for the actors is that. I love the respect that he has for the saga, and he really, uh, Carl Weathers, that is, and he really has a true fandom, and he's directing at least, probably only one, but at least one episode in season two, and they talk about how he started out as he wasn't even interested in acting anymore, and he read the script, and he was so impressed by the script that he said yes, Mm -hmm. and then he loved doing the show so much that he asked them can I direct an episode for the next season? And they said yes. So now an actor is going to get a, getting to direct an episode of the next season. That's something that happened all the time in Star Trek. You know, yes. that the films and the TV was directed by the actors, you know. Um, oh, yeah, Jonathan Frakes. Uh, William Shatner. Jonathan Frakes, yeah, absolutely. He's still directing 30 years after mm-hmm. it came out, he still directed an episode of Picard. He still directs some of um, uh, <laughs> uh, Discovery. So uh, yeah, he's 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 an example of that. And so I want to see that more in Star Wars mm. because when you bring in the actors to direct, they bring a different sense of nerddom to the to the table. Mm. And so that really excites me. I wonder what about some of the, the main next cast. one. I don't know that Harrison has any 
Oh, no, no, no. He would never. <laughs> they cannot afford. They cannot afford to bring in Harrison Ford. The cost for him to come in for one episode would cost the entire budget of the episode. Yeah. And I don't think he... I think he would come in just to troll people or, or just to make it a joke, but... Um, I think Mark Hamill Mark would, Hamill and would. I think that... I don't that, know if he has directing experience. It would be interesting But I if, think he'd do it for fun. I would love for them, at the very least, to get Mark to voice one of the aliens. He's such a great voice actor. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mandalorian, mm-hmm. it'd be a great chance to give him an opportunity to play some other roles. Um, he may have voiced an alien in Rise of the Skywalker. He I did play he did. voice one of the I, aliens I in Rise of the Skywalker. Yeah. Win the war. That sounded like him. That okay. is him. That is okay. him. Yeah. Well, it, he has a lot of diversity. He could play some other characters, but if any way for them to get him involved, since he's probably willing absolutely. of the main three back in the old days. Um, I, I, I love, yeah, absolutely. I love that, like you pointed out, the the respect they have for the characters. They made the decision to change their um, for grief Karga. They talked about how they were originally going to have some kind of you know, prosthetic. He would be alienist or whatever, and then they realized, you know, hey, we can't cover up. We have this Carl Weathers. Face. You know, <laughs> we're gonna pay for this guy. Let's get, let's get the face. And if you call, he's like, that sounds good to me. You know, and he was willing to do whatever they whatever they asked him to. But I love how he became the character to such a degree that they even let him embody it more by having his own face on it and. When, it, when somebody, any actor is so successful portraying that character that they change their mind and make it even better, they're like, this is even more than we thought it could be, you know. That's a, that's a sign that they've really done something special. So let's talk last episode of it so far. There's there's a fifth episode now, but we're not going to talk about that one yet. Um, episode four, the technology aspects. And I know you've got tons to talk about, um, but <laughs> man, isn't it great to have the forefront of technology developed on a show that we care so much about, um, talk about talk absolutely about the biggest one. Okay, let's talk about the screen, the LED projection, the volume. The volume is what it's called, which is yeah, you know, completely revolutionary for the, even the actors themselves. They're blown away. They're like, it's not even acting. You know, I, we're yeah. going down a lava tunnel and there's lava, and I feel like I'm not even getting <laughs> motion sickness, but we're standing still because you know. I know. <laughs> what, what an amazing technology! And I know they they talked. They, you know, they knew. Hey, twenty years you'll be able to film this in your garage, and and here we are. But I, I know that that's amazing. Talk about what were your biggest thoughts about? Well, I think that as one thing, people do not talk as much about this as they should. This is going to go down in the history books as one of the biggest revolutions in cinema because this produces so much potential. With the volume, you can now create something that would cost you hundreds of millions of dollars and do it for tens of millions of dollars. You can make something huge and still make it feel huge but not have to spend the money on it. For instance, with um, the the Rise of Skywalker, they had to go out and film in Jordan to get the desert landscapes. However, in The Mandalorian, they could create their own desert landscapes digitally and just put it on the board, and it looked ex- like they look equally as impressive. And yet, The Rise of Skywalker had to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on the movie, and this only spent ten million an episode, maybe mm. twelve million an episode, and it's much longer. So they really, per episode, are not spending that much. And so that's why I think this is so huge. And I'll get to my uh, make Solo 2 happen thing in a second. <laughs> but what I was going to, because uh, that's a huge thing. But what I was going to just say overall is, you remember when they made the CGI for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? Mm-hmm. And people were like, whoa, this is, this is huge. Because at the time, there was no type of CGI like it. And when Toy Story came out, and it was an entire um, uh, animated film, but it was all, I think, I think CGI or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it had this new element, and that was revolutionary when it came out. When George Lucas worked on Jar Jar, and then they turned the Jar Jar technology into Gollum for Lord of the Rings. That was huge 
and technological revolutionary. And I think this is on that level. And so that's why I am just so impressed, so excited about it. And I just love that you know, Filoni and Favreau just were like, how do we solve these problems? We're just going to experiment. We're just going to try this. And it was really interesting. They mentioned this one little phone call that they had with uh, this Skype call that they had with uh, the Disney, uh, some of the investors and some of the corporate board. And they were all, they were just Skyping them because they were saying, hey, this is our flagship show for Disney Plus. We're going to let you talk to the directors and the producers. And they're talking with Favreau and Filoni, and they don't realize that they're in the volume. They think they're in this huge, gigantic set. <laughs> and they were fooled, and they didn't, they didn't even take the time to edit it to look like, because this still requires editing to make the volume look like real life. Mm-hmm. Because if you, as you see in the background, you can tell it's the volume, kind of. But because of the way it was framed, they couldn't, the, the, the board couldn't tell. That's how impressive this stuff is. And so, anyway, I've been ranting about that. I was just blown away, amazed when I learned what kind of technology was involved. What were your overall thoughts on the volume? I mean, ILM, they've done it again. It's Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, how excited would you be when you think about let's think about the Clone Wars and where they started off with uh, the animation yeah. quality versus where oh, we yeah. are today with, with, the, with the animation mm-hmm. quality so what if Mandalorian season 1 is Clone Wars season 1 as far as the volume goes <laughs> how excited would that make you <laughs> I mean Oh, that would be so cool if we grow on that level. I don't think it's going to be quite as exponential. I think it's going to be fairly small increments. But if it is, like, exponential, man, that'd be impressive. I'm sure they'll go bigger. I'm sure they'll build a bigger volume, a bigger stage. But already, Mm -hmm. what it's done is they're able to film things with the proper lighting. And they talked a lot about reflections in the suit. You get this, you know, Beskar suit that reflects light, that reflects everything around it. All of a sudden, from changing into, you know, hey, we're going to have you know, blue screen, green screen behind everything. We're going to go back in later and add in these flares. We're going to add in these reflections. We're going to take those reflections out. How much time mm-hmm. it saved. It saved them time, it's, and it fixed the, all of these things that they would have to go back later on and fix in post. They just film it the right way the first time. And, and how brilliant it is yeah. that they're, they're saving money by doing it this way. And they've invented a technology Absolutely. that makes their job smarter, easier, looks better you know <laughs> really this is this is innovation this is what it's about you know you're going to see this technology like you said it's going to be used in other shows now but they're going to they're going to just um, do other things so we're we're going to end up way better off in the long run probably eventually this will be the standard i i, I don't think it'll be too long maybe 5 10 years from now this will be the standard and then it'll, it'll be ILM something else amazing that they do um, I loved how they talked about re- recording it using VR technology with their cameras. So yeah. they have on VR headsets. If you've used one, it's, you know, I mean, it's basically you just turn your head anyway and it's just like in real life. But they're able to picture these angles. And I know John John Favreau was talking about the Lion King really helped him. And he took the, the things that he learned from that and how to film these certain angles and stuff like that. And did all of it just took it to the Mandalorian and said... Here we go. Exactly. That's what you do, and that's why the show had the success. There, it's not just the actors. It's not just the story. It's the it's the community all deciding, we're going to take our very best talents and experiences, and we're going to put 100% into making this great, and we're going to be innovative, mm-hmm. and they pick, they pick the right people, man. This is, this is oh, a yeah. success story of hard work on every forefront, you know, from the soundtrack, obviously, to the... That obviously all the set designs being seamlessly integrated with the volume, um, mm-hmm. the, the cast having such great chemistry, the directors sitting around and learning from Granddaddy Dave Filoni, you know, we're not going to call him, he's not that old yet, but they're sitting around the campfire or whatever, you know, and, and the producers deciding to, to literally sit in and give the creative authority to these people that care so much about that product. I'm yeah. so happy. And so now I'm going to go. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I'm going to quickly go on my rant now because I need to. Rant. Because, so, Solo, every, there were people saying, I didn't ask for this. I did because I said I ask for every Star Wars project. So that's, that's um, uh, anytime anyone says, so anyone says, I didn't ask for this, I was like, not me. I always did. So anyway, with Solo, 
It should have if the, if this technology was back in 2018 or 2017, they should have done solo like this as a TV show, spread out, and they should have used the volume because solo cost them over 300 million dollars to produce. It should not have. Now, that's partially because they had to fire the directors and restart everything. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. But also, it just Release was not a Snyder type cut. of film. Release the Snyder <laughs> The Snyder cut I do not. <laughs> I do. I'm just kidding. No, I do not want the Phil Lord and Christopher Miller cut of Solo ever seeing the light of day. That's just me. Um, but <laughs> with, with Solo, it made $400 million at the box office. Now, that's pitiful for a Star Wars film, but... If they had only spent a hundred million dollars using the uh, the volume, maybe they they could make a, a solo two as a TV show, or they may not necessarily call it solo two, because but they might make it a Kira series and Solo's involved and Lando's involved. They come in for an episode or two and you bring in Darth Maul and you have all that stuff. But you can do it as the volume and it only costs a hundred million. And if you still make four hundred million off of it then you actually are turning a huge profit. Whereas with Solo, they cost $300 million plus the marketing budget, mm-hmm. and so they lost money because of that. So to me, I view it as, I think that they could do more stories through this vein, and, and so anytime they say, this doesn't work for Star Wars, it's too expensive to make, now they can say, well, what if we put it in the volume? Mm-hmm. And so that's why, that's my little rant. I, and Make Solo 2 Happened got huge, huge social media uh, attention on the second anniversary mm-hmm. of Solo. And even the director noticed it. Even the writers noticed it. John Kasdan said, yeah, it's probably not going to happen from what I've heard. But he said he'd love to come in and help with Solo 2. And so have uh, the other producers and the other as the actors have said they'd love to, to do it. So that's why I think that Solo 2, in whatever form they do it as a movie, TV show, or whether they focus on Kira or Maul or whomever, I think it's very possible, and I really want to see that. So what are your thoughts you on it? You make a really convincing argument, and I love it. As far as bringing it to the, to the serialized Disney Plus streaming format, you would mm-hmm. not have... The, the problems that were in Solo were... Had a really long run time, very disjointed, because obviously different directors, but they felt like there was mm-hmm. almost, you know, way too much plot stretched over, and felt like not too much, not enough butter stretched over too much bread, as uh, Bilbo would say. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, the, the 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 ability to streamline that into the you know, like the episodic, you know, six part or whatever that would fix a lot of the issues that you described that Solo faced using the technology that they've got. I don't think there's anything holding them back from being successful with mm-hmm. the continuation of that story, which I'm frankly quite interested in. Maul was a great introduction for the end. We, For us to get him teased and then have him yanked away, you know, it's, it's kind of upsetting. Um, I, think, yeah. I think the cast was fine. I don't think any of those casts were too high-dollar to come back in an episodic format, I think all of them would. would I be think willing. you're right, and mm-hmm. I think it would. I think it would bring. You know, you you're only going to have the Mandalorian streaming from, you know, I guess November to January. Well, get us another Star Wars show, live action, and have it stream from June to August, or you know, from February to April, and do that to keep your subscribership up. I think people would take interest in it because it's new Star Wars content. You know, and especially with the success of the Mandalorian, like you said, they're going to save money. They're going to be able to 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 tell the long format story with all the details that we miss, with all mm-hmm. the extra things that you know the movie format doesn't get to get you know sit there and pause and let you enjoy that we really love about Mandalorian. So I'm fully with you. I think people out there, if you if you hear the you know people that bad talk solo, you could probably understand why. And I don't think it's either one of our. Yeah. It's probably not in our top, you know, of Star Wars movies at all. Um, <clears throat> you're, you're turning your head sideways. It's definitely. <laughs> uh, it is. Mine. It's. <clears throat> it's. It's quite a bit. It's quite a bit high on mine. It's not. It's not my top three, but it's very high. Um, but I'm going to say this: 
it's my favorite score, which I know is heretical to a lot of people. It's my favorite score for Star Wars. And speaking of <sighs> score, the seventh episode of the Mandalorian docuseries is all about the score. So we're going to get 30 minutes on okay. the score for Mandalorian. Excellent. Isn't With, that um, going to be Ludwig awesome? Oh, yeah, Ludwig Gorenson. I am just, like, this... It was amazing what he did with the Mandalorian I'm really excited score. I to hear about that because he really took things to create that that sound. I can't wait to talk about it. I'll save my thoughts. Oh yeah. Well, we'll oh watch, yeah, that's we'll absolutely. We'll do the last four episodes once they're all out in another um, two yeah. sons of Tatooine. Yeah, and speaking of which, we're gonna take a really quick break, and when we return, we'll announce our topic for show number seven. Alright, Jonathan, we're back now, and I'm going to throw it to you to introduce what our topic will be on the next installment of Two Sons of Tatooine. I am very excited for this next one. Our seventh episode of Two Sons of Tatooine will be the discussion on the Rise of Skywalker novelization. And we're v- I'm very excited because I will be joined by Mike Self, uh, whom is one of our... Uh, co-producers of the Knights Roundtable. He's been helping us out behind the scenes. You may recognize his voice uh, in the uh, opening of every episode of Two Sons of Tatooine. And uh, he'll be joining me for that episode. And he and I have been talking behind the scenes and we're really excited to break down all the Easter eggs and references and insights from that novelization. Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. So until then, and we come back to all of our listeners out there, I'm Nathan, a.k.a. NP Bro. And I'm Jonathan Cohn. And thank you for listening to Two Sons of Tatooine.